We'd like to welcome you all to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing out our praises to God together. for so long.
Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you reveal yourself to us, through what you've created in nature, through the promise of your spirit, through your word, through each other. We pray today that you'll give us eyes to see. We ask that in this time of worship, we may have a sense of your spirit at work in each of our hearts. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting for those who are here in worship today. I want to uh, just remind you that uh, small groups begin tonight, and uh, there's a uh, list in the bulletin of those. I hope that you'll be a part of the group this uh, fall as the groups meet. We'll be uh, doing some discussion about what we've talked about on Sunday mornings as we think through this uh, series on the church. And we, uh, it's a great opportunity to just think more about it, dialogue about it, as well as a chance to connect with some folks, pray together, and to share our lives together. So we uh, encourage you to be a part of a group, and uh, you, can, you can just show up at any of the groups uh, tonight or when they meet, and uh, they, I'm sure it will be a great experience for you as you're a part of that. Also, just note that uh, there are ongoing needs for the food pantry. We have been continuing to help a lot of people. And uh, we thank you for those uh, things that you have already brought and 
Just there's some things listed in the bulletin of other needs. And there's lots of other uh, activities going on. There's a number of inserts in your bulletin about ways you can be involved. Uh, Sunday school uh, right after this service as well as a lot of other things. If you're interested in, in using some gifts, talents, abilities, uh, just a willingness to be a part of serving others. Then uh, there are opportunities for you in the bulletin and we encourage you to take advantage of those. One of the great joys we have uh, as a church is to welcome folks into the membership of the church. And this morning we have a couple of our younger people who are going to be joining as student members. And I'm going to ask them to come uh, here to the front and stand down front right now. We are all a part of Christ Church, and uh, there is a sense in which joining the church is taking a, a further step of connection to the church. And this is exciting to me for their desire to uh, be a part of the membership of the church. They went, have gone through the catechism class, so they have learned a lot about the church. They've been involved in the church uh, with their families, and uh, we are excited now to uh, welcome them into the official membership of the church and uh, join. I'm going to ask you guys to uh, turn around and I'm going to ask just a few questions uh, to just give us um, a sense of your understanding of what's happening today. Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ and the desire for Christ to continue to shape you into his image? If so, answer, I do. Do you affirm the core doctrines of historic Christianity and pledge yourselves to the unity of Christ In this diverse group of believers who are the Houghton Wesleyan Church? If so, answer, I do. Do you recognize your obligation to God and to participate in the life of the church, to contribute to the support of the church, and to serve the church by using your gifts and abilities as the church fulfills its mission in the world? If so, answer, I do. I'm going to ask you to turn back around, and Matt Webb, one of our elders, is going to take just a moment to introduce these two gentlemen to you and uh, give you a little bit of information about them and uh, as they're joining today. It's my pleasure to introduce both Mason Cool and Andrew Poole to you this morning. Uh, and I want to start by saying um, it really was a joy to meet with both of these guys in their homes this week to find out a few particulars so that I could adequately introduce them to you. Um, two impressive young men, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce them to you this morning. First, I'm going to start with Mason. Mason is a 7th grader at Fillmore Central School. Uh, His favorite subject in school is history. I asked him what some of his hobbies were, things he likes to do. He says he likes to play soccer. He likes to read. I won't tell you some of the stuff he's reading. uh, He likes to read. I'm just kidding. And Legos. Loves to do Legos. And has quite an impressive Lego collection. Um, I asked him his best summer memory. Going to the Jersey Beach with his family this summer. Asked him his favorite vacation he's ever had, and without skipping a beat, he said, going to Wyoming Hmm. to visit family, and he made the point that they flew to Wyoming, they didn't drive to Wyoming, and I think that might be part of why it was his favorite. I asked Mason what he likes about the church. He mentioned he's really enjoyed his Sunday school classes that he's had at church, and in particular, Mr. Blue's class, the catechism class, sixth grade. Mason has helped in service at the church. He's been an acolyte. Um, recently, he was part of the group that helped clean out the playground and move mulch around and, and dig that up. Uh, and he has expressed interest in potentially serving the church, uh, working children's church and the children's church ministry and maybe the boys club ministry on Wednesday nights. 
Lastly, I asked him why he wants to become a member, and he said he think it's, thinks it's important that others know that you are committed to the church, to the body of Christ, and that it's good to be in community together. This is Andrew, standing right next to me. Andrew's also a seventh grader at Fillmore Central School, and his favorite subject in school is math. Andrew's hobbies are also Legos, and he likes sports. He's playing soccer, basketball, and baseball. His best summer memory was also going to the Jersey Shore with his family. And his favorite vacation was last year when his grandparents took him to the Final Four in Indianapolis. <clears throat> and Dad didn't get to go. Just Andrew got to go. What he likes about the church is that everybody knows each other. There's a strong connection to the people in the church, and it's easy to talk to people here in our church. Andrew also expressed interest in serving, uh, potentially in the Sunday school ministries and also the boys club ministry on Wednesday night. And I asked him why he wants to become a member, and he said it's important to be connected to the church and be part of what the church believes. And he made the point that being a member of a church is not being a member of this building, but it's being a member of the people, because the people are the church. So this is Mason and Andrew, and it's my pleasure to introduce them to you. Thank you, Matt. We're going to ask those who are members of the church to stand and just take a moment to affirm uh, our commitment to uh, Andrew and Mason who are joining today. Do you, the members of this church, welcome these two gentlemen as our beloved brothers in Christ? Do you commit yourself to walk with them in love through discipleship and counsel, exhortation and grace, and to join our hearts and lives together in patience, gentleness, and love? If so, answer, we do. Father, we thank you that you have created the church and that you have blessed us with being a part of the church. We pray, Father, that uh, for these two young men who are joining the church today, becoming a part of this local church, this branch of Christ's body, we pray that you'll grant to them the grace and strength that they need to fulfill the vows that they have made to you and to us. And we pray that you will bind all of our hearts together in your holy love, that we may help each other and that together we may share your gospel with the world for which Christ died. We thank you for these two young men. May your blessing rest upon them and upon us as we nurture one another in our faith. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, guys. This time we're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. I am the Lord your God. I go before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you Though you feel I'm far away I'm closer than your breath I am with you More than you know Your peace. 
God who is with us calls us to come to him. And to, uh, one of the ways we do that is to offer our prayers. As we pray together today, if you'd like to use the altar rails, a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, we are so grateful that you have called us to yourself. Despite the fact that we struggle with so much, despite the fact that we so often fall short, you continue to call us to yourself, to embrace us, to forgive us, pour out your love upon us. We are here today because of your grace and mercy and all the ways in which you are involved in our lives, and we thank you. Father, this morning, as we, we think about the needs of our world and the needs of our lives, we pray for Paul and Jenny Christensen and the responsibilities that they have in Southeast Asia. We pray that you will pour out your spirit upon them, that that people will see you in their lives. And as they reach out to people of all ages, continue to give them health and rest. Bless them in their leadership roles and their travels. May they know your spirit at work in their lives each moment. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who continue to face great opposition and persecution for their faith. We pray that you would protect them Give them strength and courage. May they know of the prayers of your people in other places of the world. And may they be encouraged today. Father, we have just come through another uh, commemoration of the 9-11 attacks. And we are reminded that there's so much violence in our world, not just in this country, but in many places of the world. Lord, in the midst of all of this, give us the heart of Jesus. Help us, Father, to be even more committed to love and to resist hate. We pray that you will give us growing compassion for people who do not know you. We pray that you will continue to bring healing to people who are living with pain and grief from so much that has happened. It's so hard to let go of. Father, we know our own struggles. We pray for all who are grieving today. In the various forms in which it comes. We pray for all who are in need of healing in their lives. And we think especially of Kathy Moore and David Heisinger. We pray for Evelyn Heil and Alice Brown. Florence Tuber and Bunny Austin. For Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson. For Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, for Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, and Emily Crickler, and for others who may be on our hearts and minds today, we pray that you would bring your healing grace to each of them. Father, we pray for the other needs of our lives. We come today with all kinds of stuff that we've been through this past week, things that are ahead of us that bring a certain amount of anxiety and worry and concern. We pray that in every situation we will know your grace, your mercy, your strength, and give us the ability to trust you. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today and every day. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. After the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 1, 1 through 11, and Acts 2, 1 through 13. In my former book, I wrote all about that Jesus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently at the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like a blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came forward together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us are hearing them in our native languages? Parathens, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia and Philophia, Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretes and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord.
please stand and join us as we sing. There's nothing worth more than will ever come close. Nothing can compare your unwitting Lord. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone your
Please be seated. A few years ago, Dan Kimball wrote a book that he titled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. It's based on extensive interviews that he did with students at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And what he found is that as he talked to these students who, for the most part, had no real connection to Christianity, at least not a personal connection, most of them, when he talked about Jesus, their faces lit up. They had wonderful things to say about Jesus. They, they had great affinity for Jesus. But the minute the conversation turned to the church, the whole atmosphere of the, their conversation changed. And he had comments like, the church really messed things up. Uh, the, the church uh, has created, taken the, the, uh, the life of Jesus and made it into dogmatic rules. All all Christians ought to be taken out back and shot. And he said he was stunned by this, this response of people, of how people had this great affinity for Jesus, but not the church. But that's not the only place we see that. And Dillard says that it's too bad that on the heels of Christ came the church. There is something about the church that has created an atmosphere for many people of negativity. People have an issue with the church that they don't have with Jesus. And for so many people, there is this mindset that I, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. And quite frankly, there are times where maybe you and I feel that way, even though we're part of the church. I can think back to times in my life where, I, where my mindset was, I want Jesus, I'm just not sure I want the church. And maybe you've had similar experiences. But here's the problem. When we read the scriptures, it is clear that Jesus is irrevocably connected to the church. When you read the scriptures, it's clear you can't really have Jesus if you don't have the church. Cyprian of Carthage, a third century uh, leader of the church who who suffered greatly, was eventually martyred in 258, made this statement that probably to our ears sounds a little bit controversial, but he said, he cannot have God for father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, when we hear that, we want to say, well, now, wait a minute. I I can be Christian without the church. I mean, we hear that all the time. But the reality is, when you read the scriptures, I'm not sure that's really true. What is it Jesus says in Matthew's gospel? He's talking to the disciples about who do people say that I am, and it's all about him. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. In the Ephesians, Paul, to the Ephesians, Paul writes, Christ is the head of the church. And he writes the same thing to the Colossians. Christ is the head of the church. It's really impossible to, to 
disconnect Christ from the church. And that means that if people have an issue with the church, eventually they're going to have an issue with Jesus. And the problem for us who are part of the church is that we have to take responsibility for how people view the church. Because when you listen to the comments, it's about people they've encountered. It's about images they have of the church. It's about perceptions of the church. And we all have them. We all have images of the church based on our experiences with people in the church or people who make claims about Christ in the church. And at some point, we have to take responsibility for the perceptions that people have. And if we want people to come to Jesus then we are saying, we want you to come to Jesus. We want you to come to the church of Jesus. And somehow we have to figure out how to do that. How to, how to, how to bridge the gap that now so often exists between what people think of Jesus and what people think of the church. And it seems to me that if we're going to figure that out, the best place to go is to look at what happened when the church began. And we turn to the book of Acts and we find the, not a, so much a history of the church as we get glimpses into the church. And what we find here in the book of Acts as we read through from beginning to end, we find that the people, the Christians, the people who, who begin to shape that first church are, are moving from where they are and what they are to what God intends them to be. You can almost see the progression as you walk through the pages of the book of Acts. And as you read through it, you can see the church moving from infancy to maturity. And they never arrive. They never get to the place where they say, we're perfect. But they are in motion. And I'm convinced that that's what God wants for us. And that's why, borrowing a, a subtitle from a book I read a number of years ago, what we're doing in this sermon series and throughout these next few months is to think about what it means to live between what we are and what we're intended to be, as we see in the book of Acts. The reason why that resonates with me is because it, it, it starts us where we are. And that means we have to be honest about where we are. One of the problems I think that people have with the church is that sometimes we give people the impression that the church has arrived, that we've got all the answers, we've figured everything out. We, none of us would say we're perfect, but we would say we have, we've got all the answers to all the questions. We have figured everything out and we're good. And there is this sense in which being the church means that we have to at least act like we're perfect. We want to give people the impression that we're perfect. And of course, they know we're not. All they have to do is spend a little bit of time with us and that becomes very clear, right? Because none of us are perfect and the church isn't perfect. So why do we have, feel like we have to give people the impression that we're perfect, that we have it all together, that we figured out everything The reality is we start where we are. We start with what we are. And that is sinful, flawed people. People who have opened our hearts to Jesus and who have been changed by Jesus, but people who have not yet arrived. 
And we, we, I think it's important for people to know the church is not perfect. It's important for us to remember we aren't perfect. We are all sinners who have in some way or another been touched by the grace of God, but we're still people who struggle with all kinds of sin in all kinds of ways. We are a group of people who, who at some point or another, as we come together, struggle with lying and cheating and, and lust and selfish ambition and envy and jealousy and dissension. You name it, we probably struggle with it in one way or another. And instead of denying that, we need to be honest about it. Because the truth of the matter is, we can only find help when we're honest. I mean, it's the beginning of every 12-step program. Hi, I'm Wes. I'm, you know, drug addict or alcoholic or whatever the case may be. And until you can, unless you can come to the place of acknowledging the truth about yourself, the program means nothing. But that's not the whole point of the program. You haven't accomplished the program by just coming and saying, okay, I'm struggling. The point is to reach the place where you, in, in the 12-step programs of sobriety. And for us as Christians, when we come and we start by saying, this is where we are, this is the honest truth about us, the po- reason we do that is so that we can move closer and closer to what we are intended to be. What God's intention is for us. And so we start where we are. But mediocrity and settling is not God's intent for the church. God's intent is to make the church, his bride, holy. To make us like Christ. To shape us into the image of Christ individually and collectively. And that is what we are asking God to do. And over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at ways in which God does that and wants to do that. And hopefully we will let him do that. And we keep with this idea, we keep moving forward. And that's what we see in the church. And when you look at the church, what you find is that what moves them from where they are to what God intends them to be is this hunger for Jesus. Everything about the church, everything you read in the book of Acts, keeps coming back to Jesus. And this hunger for Jesus is rooted in this experience of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are transformed. They are completely different people. Because the Holy Spirit comes on them and changes them in the part of Acts 2 that we just read. But the reason the Holy Spirit comes on them and what makes the Holy Spirit avail- what makes them available to, for the Holy Spirit to enter them and to change them is the hunger for Jesus. You'll notice in Peter's sermon, we didn't read all of this, but in Peter's sermon after the, the story of Pentecost, it is all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. He's not saying to them, what you need is to seek the Holy Spirit. What he's saying to them is, you need to hunger for Jesus. And if you hunger for Jesus, then you put yourself in a position where the Holy Spirit can do something in your life. The problem with us is that we so are so susceptible to hungers that are good, but not best. 
so for some of us, we, we think, when we think about the church, when we think about worship, and we think about coming together and being the church, we're thinking most about knowledge. And knowledge is important. We need to know. Scripture calls us over and over again to know about the things of God. And, but the knowing about the things of God isn't the goal. It is a means to moving us closer to what God intends us to be. When knowledge becomes the goal, then what we end up doing is fighting about theology. And we begin, we, we can become very arrogant very easily that we have the right theology. We've figured these things out. We know, and unless you know what we know and believe what we believe in the exact same way we believe it, then you're just out. It's what's created so much of the dissension in the church through the centuries. Because instead of putting Jesus first and hungering for Jesus, we've put knowledge first. On the other side of it is experience. And for some people, the the goal, the purpose, the passion, the yearning, the, the hunger is for an experience. And we aren't really sure that, that we have, we've done what we need to do unless we've had some experience with God. And so we come to the church looking for an experience. And experiences are good. We give thanks to God for the great experiences that we have. You look, notice in the book of Acts, they have this amazing experience when the Holy Spirit comes. But you don't hear them anywhere else in the book of Acts saying, all right, you guys have to have that exact same experience or something's wrong with you. And they don't try to say, boy, we must not be doing something right because we, we aren't having that same experience over and over again. And we're yearning for an experience. What you find is they're hungering for Jesus. And again, experiences are good. They're a a gift of God. But if that becomes our primary focus, our primary hunger, then we'll be thinking about, okay, how did I feel today? I haven't really really sensed that feeling in me. And I love experiences. When we sing, and can it be, and we get to that third verse that said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and forth and followed thee. I get goosebumps when I sing that. I love singing that. In the same way when we sing just that simple chorus, you are good, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. And those can be wonderful experiences for us. But if we come looking primarily for an experience, Jesus gets kind of moved to the side. For some some of us, it's about comfort. Now, I want the church to make me feel comfortable. And there is, a, there is something about the comfort of the Holy Spirit in our struggles and our pain and our weakness that is, is good. It's important. And we... But sometimes what we're really looking for from the church is, I, I don't want to be challenged. I don't want, I don't want risks. I just want everything to be, feel just nice and safe and comfortable. And the Spirit often has other things in mind for us. The Spirit is, is often saying, I, I think I want to um, turn things around a little bit for you. When you think about that early the days of the early church, I mean, they have, they have about 120 people gathered. And all of a sudden, at, at the end of the first day, 
3,000 people come into the church. Now, you talk about disrupting things. I mean, I have a feeling that as 120, they're thinking, you know, this feels pretty good. We kind of know each other. We figured out each other, how thing, how we interact with each other. We, we like this. This feels comfortable. This feels safe. This feels nice. And now you're adding 3,000 people into that. Wow. You, you know there are people saying, no, wait, what if some of those people take over leadership in the church that I want? What if they start becoming more prominent in the church than me? What if this just totally disrupts our, you know, we're not, we're not family anymore. And I suspect it's one of the reasons why, why 3,000 people came that day. Just to remind them, it's not about feeling comfortable. It's about what the God wants to do through his spirit. And God is always willing to shake things up a little bit. In order to help us stay focused. And maybe it's about. For some of us maybe. Our focus is morality. And as important as morality is. I mean being moral is much better than being immoral. Being good is much better than being evil. But when our focus. And our hunger is for morality. What tends to happen. Is we start making rules. And we start thinking. As long as I follow the rules. Everything's good. And rules aren't bad unless rules become most important. And we start judging whether we're right with God because we can check off our list of rules. But isn't that exactly what Jesus condemns the Pharisees for? Saying, yeah, you follow all the rules, but your hearts, they're a mess. And sometimes we can become so enamored with rules and, and with morality that we miss Jesus. Again, hear me. I'm not saying that morality is bad and we ignore it. It's extremely important. But morality is something that comes out of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do in us and how Jesus shapes us and works in us. And then out of that, we become the kind of people who live moral lives and who are concerned about morality in our world. What I've discovered is, and I'm sure there are more things, but what I've discovered is all of the hungers that are anything but Jesus tend to be focused on us. How we feel, what we think, what we want. And the only alternative to that is a hunger, a focus, a yearning for Christ. For Jesus. And I think one of the reasons we struggle so much is because when Jesus says to the disciples, the Holy Spirit is coming, and I want you to prepare for that, there's only one thing really that he tells them to do. He says to them in Acts 1 verse 4, stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. You know, I, I hate waiting. Waiting feels like such a waste of time. You know, I, I don't like waiting when we go to the, to the big city of Wellsville and we have to stay, wait at a stoplight. 
I, I don't like that, but I don't like sitting out here and waiting for three cars to go by before I can turn on to 19. But you know, our lives are full of waiting. We wait in checkout lines. We wait for our food to be served. We wait for the laundry to get done. We wait for our, our children. We wait for our parents. We wait for our spouses. We wait for our siblings. We wait for the teacher to show up. We wait for the students to show up. We wait for the school bus to come. We, we spend our lives waiting. You know, Jerry Seinfeld has this great little skit about going to the doctor's office and waiting. You know, he said it, it ought to disturb us that we actually walk into a room that they have actually called a waiting room. So you know what's going to happen when you sit down in that room. It's just inevitable. And then they call your name and you think, oh, I'm in, I'm going now. See, the doctor says, no, you're just going to a smaller waiting room. And that one doesn't have magazines in it. You know, we, we, have, we, we spend so much of our lives waiting and we, have to, we develop an attitude that is such a waste of time. And yet God seems enamored with waiting. I mean, over and over again, it's what God calls people to do. You look at the Psalms and the psalmist says in, in Psalm 27, I will wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, I will wait for the Lord because my hope is in him. When Jesus is brought to the temple in Luke chapter 2, it says that Simeon is there and he has spent his life waiting because God promised him that he would see the Messiah. It's interesting to me that the word in Hebrew that's translated wait can also be translated trust. I think that's a real key point. In Isaiah 40, at the end of that chapter, he says, those who wait, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. Why is God so enamored with waiting? Because it's in waiting that we learn to trust. It's in waiting that our hearts are prepared. I think the disciples spend these days waiting and and. It helps them get ready for when the Spirit comes. If the Spirit had come the day that Jesus ascends, I don't think they would have been ready for it. They needed those 10 days to wait, to bond together, to prepare their hearts, to get themselves in the right place so that when the Spirit came, they were ready for it. And you and I need to do the same thing. And the calling on our lives, and what the most identifying mark of a hunger for Jesus is a willingness to wait. Because in waiting, there's humility, there's trust. There's a sense of saying, God, I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know when you're going to move upon us. I don't even know exactly how you're going to do this. But I will wait because I trust you. And we think of waiting as... Wasted time. But often it's in waiting that we learn some of the most valuable lessons of life like patience and trust and humility. The disciples are just wait. And in waiting, we don't just sit and twiddle our thumbs. There is active waiting. And for us, I think when we talk about waiting for for the Spirit, waiting for for Christ to do what He wants to do, that's why He's given us the spiritual disciplines of the Scriptures and prayer and worship and sacraments 
and community. If we put ourselves in a position where we are actively seeking God in our waiting, every moment, let me reword that, there is not a moment that is wasted. And however long we have to wait for God to do what we are hoping he will do, however long we have to wait for God to, to, to speak into our lives as a church, however long we wait, is okay. Because in the waiting, God is shaping us and teaching us and chipping off some rough edges and honing some of the places that need his work and bonding us together as people who corporately are seeking, hungering for Jesus. The result of the waiting, the result of the hungering is the work of the Holy Spirit. When I read this passage, the thing that comes to my mind, the word that comes to my mind is uncontrollable. Which is another reason we wait. Because the reason we don't like to wait is because we like to control things. And waiting is the most... We can't control anything when we're waiting. We can't control the traffic. We can't control the timing of things. We just have to wait. And the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit does some things that, quite frankly, are beyond our ability to comprehend. I don't think the disciples are sitting there on those 10 days thinking, I wonder what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes. I bet there are going to be tongues of flames on our heads, and we're going to speak in languages that no one, we've never spoken before, and this great, amazing revival is going to break out. I don't think they had a clue. They just went with the flow of what the Spirit was doing. And the Spirit was uncontrolled. But it wasn't just in the first part of chapter 2 when these amazing things happened that stunned everyone. It's also at the end of chapter 2. At the end of that chapter, it says, they were all together in one heart and one mind, reading the Scriptures, sharing meals, praying together, and giving to each other whatever they had. To meet each other's needs. You talk about miraculous. I mean, it's only been a couple of months before, and these same disciples were at each other's throats about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And now they're saying, it doesn't make any difference. You go before me. Here, what I have is yours. That's the kind of stuff that happens when the Spirit comes upon His people. And the church begins moving from what we are a little bit closer to what we're intended to be. We yearn, we hunger for Jesus so that the Holy Spirit, we're ready for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Because the church without the Spirit is just a country club. The church without the Spirit is just another institution. John Wesley wrote near the end of his life that his greatest fear 
for the Methodist movement was not that it would cease to exist in America or Europe. His greatest fear was that it would continue to exist without the Spirit. That it would have the form of the church, but not have the Spirit's power to be the church. And that ought to be our greatest fear as well. You know, I kind of had this love-hate relationship with mowing the grass. Um, I've been mowing the grass since I was 10, 11 years old. You know, I, the only difference now is that I've graduated because of the size of our yard is that I've graduated from a push mower to a riding mower. But, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't really like mowing the grass because it's so time-consuming and it seems like it's always coming at us. But I, I like it because it's the one, kind of one of the few moments of the year or the, or the week when I get to actually listen to some music. And so I, I turn on my iPod, put in my earphones and listen to music. And usually sing while I'm listening to music as I'm riding around the yard, much to the embarrassment of our children when they were younger. Because I didn't realize for a while that everybody could hear me. I figured the mower was drowning me out, but I, I realized later. And part of that was because Kelly Hitchley was, all, was one of our neighbors, so they moved. She loved to sing when she mowed. The difference is Kelly sang opera. I sang hits from the 70s. And so, you know, while she's singing La Boheme, I'm singing you know, Barry Manilow or something, you know, Chicago. But... I, when I start getting into that music, I, I sort of lose track of what I'm doing. Of course, mowing can get kind of, you know, mundane. And so I'm just kind of going around. And it would, it's not been unusual for me at times to get so engrossed in what I'm singing that I miss spots or I mow the same thing twice uh, because I'm just not paying that much attention. I'm thinking about the music and getting into that. And so it, earlier this summer, I had stopped the mower to move something that I needed to mow around. I got back on and took off. And I'm singing away, you know, all this stuff. And it came a pause in the, in the music. And I thought, something doesn't sound quite right. And I stopped for a second and I realized that when I stopped, the blade, I had to disengage the blade, turn it off. And when I started back up again, I forgot to re-engage the blade. And so for five or six, maybe minutes or more, I had been going around the yard mowing without the blades turning. There was a lot of noise, and, and, and there was a lot of movement, and I was using up a lot of gasoline, but I wasn't cutting any grass. And as I was telling that, to, I was talking to someone about that story, and they said, you know, that sounds a lot like what happens in the church sometimes. That's, that's so true. Sometimes we make a lot of noise, there's a lot of activity, we're doing all kinds of things, and it looks great. But the reality is we're operating without the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we are hungering after something other than Jesus. My desire for us is that whatever other things may may come to the top of our hunger list, that those would, be, would slide aside, take their, their rightful place, so that we hunger for nothing but Jesus. Now, sometimes we ask, sometimes people will say, you are what you eat. I'm thinking maybe what we ought to be saying is, we are what we hunger for. 
Gracious Father, we pray that you will give us a hunger for Christ. Just give us a hunger for Christ. A willingness to wait. To keep making sure that lesser hungers are in their rightful place. Give us a hunger for Jesus. And in that hunger, fill us with your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do one thing this week. I'm going to challenge you and me to take one minute, just 60 seconds, in the morning or at night or both if you want, as you think about it during the day, and to ask God to give us as a church a hunger for Jesus. To create a hunger for Jesus in, in us collectively. That we might be a church that's operating not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Mason and Andrew to come down front for a minute, greet them, welcome them into the membership of the church. And as they do that, I'm going to ask you to stand and receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.